and welcome to the Brodacious Book Club. The podcast where we host a book club and I haven't read the book. I'm your host, Aaron Rockford. And I am Matthew Thomas. And today we are joined by a very special bro, Evan May, who is smooth like a dolphin. Sure. Okay. <laughs> sure. Just going with... Would you like to give yourself a um, more proper introduction, Evan? I mean, I, it, it's hard to imagine something that could possibly be more proper than that. But uh, sure. Who am I? I am the author of a couple of, uh, what, what did we end up calling them? Other horror novels. I'm the author of a couple of horror novels. Uh, I teach history. The, the King in Darkness and Bonham Set Those are the titles, yes, which my publisher yes. would be happy if I reminded people of. Yeah, so I've written a couple of books. I uh, teach history. <laughs> And uh, I also am one of the programmers for uh, CanCon, which is Ottawa's yearly uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror convention. And also you have a podcast. I do have a podcast, yes. And my co-host will be happy that you reminded me of that. Yes, I'm also the co-host of the Broadcast from the Wasteland podcast, where we also talk about uh, stories we love and uh, talk to the people who create them. Lovely, lovely. And, and we had Aaron Yes, on. we talked about Batman. We did talk about Batman. <laughs> I, I heard it got heated. You debated Batman, no? It was a Batman debate, <laughs> yes. Mostly stayed civil, I think. Brandon still cries about it sometimes, <laughs> but it toughened him up. It toughened him up. So it goes. He'll, he'll be ready next year for our Doctor Who debate. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. I, I'll be hoping he improves. I going to say his track record's not great, but... No, you know. I hope the, the no riddles part of the rubric is still in effect. <laughs> well, you know what? We will take that as a request from our defending champion. Yes, I will. I will make sure that's on the rubric. Love it. We should maybe actually talk about books at some point. Right? Yes. Um, I mean, we could do whatever. Uh, <laughs> Just go rogue. <laughs> yeah. You can't be. You can't be like a slave to your title just because you're true. called a book it's club. True. It's true. This is our podcast. Time is an illusion. <laughs> But I, I guess, I guess, with as usual, our warning that we will be diving right into the book and we will be discussing spoilers. So if you don't want spoilers, uh, feel free to click off now, go read the book, and come back later. Right. And this podcast is also meant for entertainment purposes only. This is a comedy podcast? Question mark? Likely? Sometime? <laughs> and we mean no disrespect to the books or the authors discussed. We are just. Two people who think that we're funny. Three. Three today. Three people <laughs> who think we're funny. I guess we can kind of jump right into it. So, Aaron, what are we reading today? So, today we are reading Neuromancer by William Gibson. Mm -hmm. Big one. Which, yeah, is, is a pretty, I would say, big, like, foundational-ish text of the last, what, 30 years in the, the world of sci-fi? More than that. I think I have, I have in my notes 1984. So. But I could be mistaken about that. History teacher. <laughs> I could be off by two years. <laughs> this, Fair enough. I'm a Fair medieval enough. history this, this teacher. Not, this is not your, your, your game. Don't what? Worry. You're not an expert in the history of modern publishing? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately not. Evan and I have actually both read the book this time. And which is, that was only a mild call out of Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> mild, indeed. I, I'm always here for call outs of Brandon. So. <laughs> But it's probably good that we have two people on this episode who have read the book, because I'm going to be honest, the first time I read this book, it was almost incomprehensible to me. <laughs> I had to, like, I read it, 
and then went flipped back immediately to the first page and started again Wow! with like the Wikipedia page open oh my goodness. to consult. Cause I just like, I was just having so much trouble following some of the action in this. Interesting. Okay. Can't wait to get into why. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a book that like, I've read it a bunch of times now. Cause I, I reread books. It is a book that every time I read it, I do notice something about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't before, which I always think is cool. But I mean, there is, and this is just the way William Gibson tends to write all of his stuff. There is a lot that is left ambiguous or left for the reader to interpret or the reader to kind of figure out what's going on. So I, yeah, Aaron's, Aaron's reaction is not necessarily shocking. <laughs> but no, but I'm, I'm glad to have more, more of an expert on to help, help us with the <laughs> summary. And the well, let's not go crazy with the e-word but um and this book is also sort of considered to have pioneered cyberpunk as a distinct genre as i understand it yeah and and i mean my understanding is like william gibson is one of the big names from that cyberpunk movement his buddy bruce sterling is kind of the other big one and then you had other writers like like pat cadigan that were part of it as well but gibson is kind of he's the name that people know he's the one who got i think the most commercial success out of it. So yeah, and, and Neuromancer is the book, again, it's the title that everybody knows. And it's the one that gets pointed to as this is the cyberpunk book. Yes. Well, I mean, Billy Idol made a song about it on his cyberpunk album. So obviously, that's the, the height of that fame. settles the question. <laughs> <laughs> what a weird album. Anyway, the 90s were a weird time. How do you even know the 90s were a weird time? <laughs> I was alive for you were half of them that's right good lord listen you're exposing our youth (laughs) disembodied voices but anyway we digress yet again yes we 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 (laughs) should should we define what cyberpunk is before we actually get into like the details of the story yeah good call so my, my understanding of cyberpunk, at least, is science fiction in sort of a dystopian setting. And the idea is that it's like high tech, but low life, i.e. like criminality of some description. And, and sort of looking at the contradiction, I guess, between like a world that's very technologically advanced, mm. but sort of societally not, socially mm. not. Mm. So like Blade Runner is kind of like the quintessential cyberpunk in my mind, which even though I think like Blade Runner, or at least the book it was based on came out before Neuromancer. Really? Oh. I think. Uh, pretty sure you're right. And I'm pretty sure I've seen Gibson talk somewhere about how seeing the movie greatly influenced him writing Neuromancer. There, there are a lot of similarities yeah. um, in yes. some, at least in tone. Tone. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and another example of cyberpunk um, that's maybe a bit more modern is the Matrix trilogy, mm. which absolutely, as you'll see, borrows a lot from Neuromancer, oh, really? including its name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gibson's quote about all this stuff is, is um, and I can't remember where he actually wrote this, but uh, the street finds its own uses mm-hmm. for things, which I think is, is kind of a good summary of how cyberpunk looks at, at mm-hmm. high tech. It's how it gets used by... Not necessarily always criminal people, but uh, seedy people, people from yeah, what we would call the lower parts of society. And, and how does high tech affect that mm-hmm. part of society? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've also seen uh, Akira used as an example of like Japanese cyberpunk, but I've never seen Akira and I am not super familiar with the like Japanese side of this. But mm. I thought I would mention it because I thought it was interesting. 
especially because this book takes place partially in Japan. Oh, well, that's actually a perfect transition to the next question, the next introductory <laughs> question, which is all about the setting. I guess you, you've already covered the genre, but uh, pay me a word picture. Where are we? Um, We're in a place called Chiba City, which is in Japan. And I don't, I don't remember them specifying a year. I could be wrong about that. It does not specify a year. It is some vague, not too distant future. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, clearly they have technology that is, and, and I think part of this takes place in space. Part of it does take place in space, yes. Hey, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad I was on, on, <laughs> the on fact that you're, for that. The fact that you're unclear about it makes me <laughs> so curious, considering that you read it twice, you were saying. That's, that's, I did. Hmm. Okay. With obvious technology that we don't have. Sure. It's sort of unclear as to how far in the future this takes place, but it doesn't date it, which is probably for the best, just because, you know, you see things that are like said in the distant, far distant year of 2020. Right. And you're like, yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 80s science fiction yeah, writer. Yeah, no kidding, eh? <laughs> okay. Back to the future. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Back to the future. But okay, interesting. I guess without giving uh, giving too much away, because we're about to get into a summary of the plot. What's the arc? You know, what's what's the the general story here? You're laughing. Oh, geez, what is? What, why are you laughing? Question. What does that mean? What is the arc to this book? Silence from <laughs> from uh, all parties at the table. Uh, well, sorry, I was waiting to see if that was a rhetorical question. I mean, it's a little bit of a rhetorical question. It's. <sighs> I would say it's not like a traditional arc by any means. I was I was almost tempted to call it self-discovery, but it's not really. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's going on. I mean, it is in some ways, if you boil down like what is the plot, in some ways the plot is a heist. Yes, the plot is a heist. Oh, okay. Of our of our main character, the the protagonist self-discovery is his main arc through it, sure. That's true. I guess I feel like the I guess we can we'll, we'll probably get into this later, but the protagonist seems in many ways almost secondary to what's happening in this novel in a lot of ways. Interesting. Okay. I'm curious as to, you both seem to have had some trouble digesting this story. Would it make more sense for you to explain why that is now, or will that become abundantly apparent as we go through the plot? I think that's going to become abundantly apparent as we go through the plot. Okay, lovely, lovely. I was was going through my notes the other day just in preparation because I like to make sure they're coherent. Mm. And there were parts in the notes where I'm like, I don't know what I meant by this. I don't know what was happening here. Those are always the best notes. It's always worrying when you see that in your notes. There's a lot of question marks as we get further in. Oh, dear. So we'll we'll see what happens, I guess. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, then I guess uh, a question to just take us right into it then. Who who is our protagonist? Who are we dealing with? You know, our eyes open. Who are we? Where are we? Go ahead. (laughs) So our protagonist is named Case. Sure. He's a sort of former hacker. We learn... I think somewhat early on that he stole from a previous employer and the employer in revenge damaged his nervous system, mm. which has damaged his ability to access the cyberspace network that he was using to do the hacking, which is called the matrix. Oh, so right, right off the bat, we have this, you know, reference to another franchise. And it means that he's basically unhirable. He can't, he can't do his hacking anymore. And he's, he's sort of trapped within himself. I think there's a line about being in a prison of his own flesh. And he's kind of turned to drugs to, to deal with that. Oh, okay. 
heavy right off the bat. Yeah, definitely. This book has some heavy stuff that's almost obscured by how confusing it is. At least I found. Hmm. I yes. Yeah. Where like there were definitely several scenes where I'm like, I think there's something deeply screwed up happening here, but I I can't quite tell. Interesting. I mean, I think overall as a writer, and if you look at Gibson, all of the stuff that he writes, I was going to say he he rewards careful reading, but I think it's more like he demands careful reading. Because mm. a lot of the stuff he writes, it is almost it is almost like a puzzle. Definitely have to be paying very close attention. Like if I'm reading Gibson, like a new Gibson book, I can't read it when I'm tired because you have to pay so much attention to every word and and what they what they imply to really get a sense of, okay, here's what's going on. So yeah, certainly if you try to skim it, it's going to be incomprehensible. And yeah, he, 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 he demands a lot of attention, I think, um, is a good way to think. About yes, it. yes. And, and I think as a writer, he wants you to, ha- to figure things out and he's happy for you to figure things out. He's never mm-hmm. going to lay out a lot of exposition of, I'm going to clearly explain this setting and clearly explain exactly what happened here. He wants you to figure it out. Yes, absolutely. Um, and there's a lot of this, this made me laugh a little bit, just that there's a lot of scenes that just kind of end in like the middle of a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> or like, like where there would be, and it's, I mean, it's kind of a nice, like, like economy of storytelling, I guess, in that like, yes. there's definitely not a lot of wasted words here. No. And and you're right. Like he doesn't do either like sort of introducing a scene and then I guess outroing a scene. Mm-hmm. He just gives you the well, scene. And yeah, yeah, when it's done, it's just kind of done. And, and we'll go to the next yeah. scene. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. It, it's a little bit funny. Like it makes sense, but it's a little bit funny. Mm. It's a little unstructured, but it also sounds a little bit... Mm liberating i don't know you know a little (laughs) little bit of uh reader agency you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no i I would agree with that so the the book starts with him meeting up with an ex-girlfriend of his linda and they talk about how he's in debt to this drug dealer who apparently wants him dead and linda's not doing great either and case gives her the money that he has rather than saving it to pay off his debts which is nice of him which he is sure (laughs) Maybe not particularly um, farsighted, but, Mm. and the first bit of the book sort of deals with him trying to figure out this, this hit or this, at least this, this debt. He goes to a friend, uh, Julius Dean, who doesn't really know anything about this supposed hit and Case knows he's being tailed and kind of assumes that it's for this. We get some world building about how uh, Dean is this, sort of old man who has spent his money on rejuvenation treatments and fashion and and appears younger just to give Mm -hmm. some information about the world and and the way in which people use some of the, the, the higher tech that they have access to, or at least the, you know, scientific advancements that they have access to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, Gibson is, is already there. He's laying some, some, some foundations of, of where not just this book goes, but a lot of his cyberpunk mm-hmm. stuff goes. Cause this is, this is in a later, this is in the, the sequel to Neuromancer Count Zero, but one of the, the, uh, the characters has this realization and it, she, she comes to realize that the extremely rich are no longer even remotely human. Mm-hmm. 
mm. and that kind of inhumanizing force of, of wealth in, in Gibson's fiction is pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things that uh, Neuromancer is about. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the Julius Dean character starts laying the, the track for that very early mm-hmm. on. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Is Would you say that, again, without giving too much away, <laughs> would you say that inequality is one of the themes of Neuromancers? Mm. Or is that just kind of something that's there for the ride? I mean, I would say inequality is one of the things that Gibson is mm. interested in as a writer, not just in, in Neuromancer, but a lot of the stuff that he writes. You do almost always from the perspective of someone from what we would typically call the lower class. You do see the difference between the world of, I guess, ordinary people and the very wealthy. Mm-hmm. He is, yeah, I think he's interested in exploring the difference between the two worlds that the very wealthy and the, the rest of the world inhabit and kind of the consequences for what it means that those worlds are very different. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So Case runs into the the drug dealer that he's owing money to. And there's this the scene I really liked that doesn't, really end up meaning much narratively but i think means more thematically wherein they're they're in a bar and the bartender stands up for case and helps him kind of get things sorted with the the drug dealer that he owes money to the the sort of interplay between them struck me as very interesting and and sort of shows some of like the politics of this uh, quote-unquote underworld type area Um, so they, they kind of get things sorted and Case meets the woman who's been tailing him. Her name is Molly and she's not trying to kill him. She doesn't work for the drug dealer at all. She's actually a mercenary who's looking to hire him for a job. And she has the, the, the one like primary piece of description we get from Molly is that she has these surgically inset glasses. Interesting. Which is just a interesting character detail to keep in your mind sure is she takes him to a hotel to meet with um the guy that wants to hire him who's this ex-military guy named armitage and as we learned at the beginning like case can't hack anymore but armitage has the resources to fix the damage that was done to his 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 nervous system also, I have in these notes, and I do not remember the, the context of this, that Molly is something called a street samurai. So sure. if you want to expand on that one, Evan, feel free to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that is that is literally, and, and one of the barriers that I know sometimes people have with not just Neuromancer, but a lot of Gibson stuff is he invents a lot of slang for the world. And street samurai is some of that. And he never, like, has that expository moment where some character says, hey, what does that word mean? And someone explains. He leaves you to figure it out from context. Yeah, street samurai is basically just his slang word for basically someone who's a gun for hire. That does make sense. And like, to be fair, street samurai does sound quite a bit cooler. (laughs) It does sound pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And just, yeah, the the character of Molly is one uh, who had shown up previously in some of Gibson's short fiction, and that's actually yeah. referenced. Oh, really? Yeah, that's actually referenced in Neuromancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she shows up later in uh, in some of his later stuff as well. Yeah. So Molly Molly's one of his, I guess, big characters. And yeah, the um, the surgically inset glasses. I feel like this is an important detail. They're they're like mirror shades, right? So it's, yes, her, yes. her eyes are covered with mirrored lenses all the time. Mm-hmm. As a metaphor, that's great. Yeah, and. They're kind of one of the the uh, the totems, I guess, mm-hmm. that the cyberpunk movement used in general. Mm. 
Yes, that's true. So Case goes, Case decides to take the job and he goes through the, the surgery to fix his nervous system. And Molly stays with him through his recovery and they end up sleeping together. And there's a bit where she has to tell him not to touch her glasses while they're together because he'll leave fingerprints and like you can't just take them off and clean take them. Him off and clean yeah. them. Yes. Which again is a bit of an extraneous detail, but also I feel like goes a little bit towards developing her as a character. Mm-hmm. Are you going to tell Matt the other thing that that's a little unusual about Molly? Which 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 part? I mean, the razor blade fingernails, I think, are oh yes, oh, a significant yeah. detail. Probably a lot in the book, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like Molly has been by the time Case meets her, she's had significant mm-hmm. surgical alterations and also uh, like alterations to her nervous system to make her. A better fighter mm-hmm. and one of the things she has is under each of her fingernails she has like retractable razor blades she basically she's got claws she's got claws which like if we could all do that i was gonna say sounds like a dream be cool yeah but uh <laughs> but cool good to know good i to thought know. i thought you were referring to because i think we also get a fairly good description of her breasts and so i was i was a little <laughs> bit worried that that's where you were going with that <laughs> No, 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 no. I mean, there. Well, there is there is some reference to her breasts um, and what they look like later. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say there definitely is like a minor plot point about that later on. And I mean, we also find out much later how Molly earned the money to get all of this stuff done, which is um, yes, creepy and weird. But we'll we'll get we'll get there. I'm jumping I'm jumping ahead in your plot summary. So. So they sleep together. Yeah. So they sleep together after he's recovered from the surgery. Case wants to make sure that his like he wants to check in with his friends or allies i'm not not sure many of them count as friends but anyway Uh, he tries to go and get some info from dean about armitage and the and the the mission i believe i mean i i would agree that none of the people that he's he was dealing with in shiba city are are really friends i mean one of the things that uh people tell case and i think eventually in his character arc he he kind of comes to accept is true is that during his time in Chiba City, because he was so miserable about not being able to access the Matrix anymore, the way one of the, the people puts it, and I, I think it's Armitage, is that he's been trying to trick the street into killing him when he's not looking. Mm-hmm. And so all of these people that he's been working with are, are yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not really his friends. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we, we also get the explanation at some point in here that during the surgery, Armitage had implants put in Case's liver that prevents him from getting high Yes. to sort of try to curb the drug dependence, I would assume. Yes. And also in the midst of all this, in a scene that I've read several times and do not really understand the actual events that happen, like the sequence of events that happens in it, but it results in Linda getting killed. Ties that up neatly. Okay. If it, if it makes you feel better... This is one of those things that I didn't understand until I had read the book a bunch of times either. Okay. Please enlighten us. There's some stuff with, there's some stuff with Linda that is not immediately apparent unless, unless you pay really close attention. Cause she's, she's in a fighting ring or something, right? Yes. 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 Yeah. Cause they go, they go to watch the fights cause Molly wants to go to watch the fights. Mm-hmm. But we need to go back a little bit. Okay. When you were talking about the drug dealer who wants to kill Case, we discover that he never wanted to kill Case. Mm-hmm. This was something that Linda had set up so that she could rip off Case from the for the little bit that he had. He had uh, some, mm-hmm. uh, what's just described as RAM. He had some stuff that he was going to sell. Linda creates this 
she lies that this guy is trying to kill him so that basically he's going to freak out and run around for a while long enough for her to rob him. Mm. These are the kind of people that Case is dealing with. Because of that, because she stole that from Case, Julius Dean wants to kill Linda. I'm, I'm fairly certain, having read this book as many times as I have, I'm fairly certain it's because that that deal the Case was originally involved in involved Julius Dean. Yes, I, I do remember that Julius Dean was involved. Yes. Because that's a bit of a revelation later on, I believe, that when Case finds that out. Yeah, yeah, because again, he had been thinking that Julius Dean was his friend, right? Yes. And and Molly even tells him, tells Case that no, he's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Case doesn't really, doesn't really believe her. But yeah, uh, Julius Dean has, by the time we get to that scene at the fight ring, yeah, sends people to kill both Case and Linda. And they, they fail at killing Case, but they do succeed in killing Linda. Yes, she gets killed with a laser. Yes, because science Cyberpunk, yeah. <laughs> Cyberpunk, yeah. So anyway, so, so Case leaves Chiba City with Molly and Armitage, and it's revealed that the implants in Case's liver are filled with a toxin, and if Case doesn't complete the mission on time, they will release, and I don't think they'll kill him, but they will cut him off from the Matrix again. Yeah, it's basically the same toxin that was used to damage his nervous system in the first place. Mm-hmm. And if this if this sounds at all to you like part of the plot of Escape from New York, that's because William Gibson saw Escape from New York and he really loved it. And he explicitly said he took a couple <laughs> of elements from it. I'll, some of the background of the character of Armitage is mm. lifted from Escape from New York. And I, I I'm pretty sure because it's such a close match, this idea of something that's implanted into our protagonist that gives him only so long to complete the mission or it'll it'll be released and he'll die or in this case, get crippled again. Yeah, it's not an accident that uh, that's... Yeah, that makes sense. I've actually never seen Escape from New York. Neither have um, I. But- <laughs> we are uncultured, but... But I find it really interesting, I have to add, that we basically have a subject matter expert here who's able to give us a little bit of yeah, the context. Yeah, no, it's it. awesome. <laughs> I didn't even know that his novels were within one universe, you know? I, mm. I had no idea. So this is this is all new to me. Not all of them are. Sure. Not all of them are. Neuromancer has two books that go with it in one trilogy. Uh, that's usually called the Sprawl Trilogy. The Sprawl is the name that, that Gibson kind of gives to cities generally. Mm-hmm. And he wrote another trilogy that's called the Bridge Trilogy. And now he's kind of working on another one. But some of his stuff is all set in one world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his early short fiction is set in the same world as uh, as Neuromancer and the rest of the Sprawl Trilogy. The reason I know all this, and, and I don't know, I maybe should have said this in my intro, is that... Um, and don't let this affect anything that you're going to say. William Gibson is probably still my favorite author. Mm. And I am old enough that like I was reading Gibson when I was in my teens. And I remember very clearly thinking for the first time, not just I, you know, I'm reading a book and this is a cool story, but I really like the writing. Mm. So in a lot of ways, like Gibson was the first writer that I admired as a writer, not just wow, they wrote a cool story. Yeah. So as a result, I paid a lot of attention to, to William Gibson, which is why I know this stuff. Yeah, really? no, and it's, it's, and it's good. It's, it's it's super helpful. Certainly. So Case and Molly meet with a guy named The Finn, yes. who is, I think, a contact of Molly's. Yep. And he sort of has this question about where the mission comes from originally, like who could be backing Armitage, who's kind of a, a, a non-person in some ways. Like he's described as having very obviously been given like plastic surgery to make him like handsome in a sort of too handsome way. Mm. Yes. 
Yeah, he's he's non-person is a good way to to put it. Yeah, like both in how he looks and how he acts, he's very flat. Yeah, yeah, and so it's it's pretty obvious that he's not the the architect of this whole thing. And we finally kind of find out some information about the job. Like we said, it's a it's a heist novel in some respects. the The first part of it is to steal this saved consciousness. Yes, yes. <laughs> It's. I think it's described as a as a ROM. Yes. Which seems a little bit dated, but that's okay. Yeah, and I mean, this is one of the challenges. This is one of the challenges for first time readers of Neuromancer right now. Anyway, yeah. when Gibson was writing this in 1982 or 1984, it doesn't really matter. Tech was obviously very different, and although it's imagining the future, there's a lot of ways where things mm. seem very dated. Yeah, the way he talks about ROM seems very dated. Um, mm. Nobody has a cell phone in this entire book. Yeah. Wireless doesn't exist. Like when you want to access a computer, you have to literally make a physical connection to it. And and for some people, that's something they can't get past. They're just like, yeah. this this is ridiculous. But yeah, the, the way he talks about ROM, I mean, fortunately, I'm not really a tech person to begin with. So it doesn't particularly bother me. But I can see if you were a tech aficionado, some of it would probably really drive you insane. I'll be honest, I don't really have a good concept of what ROM even is, but I know it's something that I used to hear a lot of, like the, the word ROM I used to hear a lot of in like computer e circles and now do not anymore, really. <laughs> for, for context, I'll add that Erin still uses an iPod separate yeah. <laughs> from her phone. So indeed, perhaps not the most... <laughs> Tech savvy? Yeah. So that... You, you caught me on something, just real quick. Uh, a saved consciousness. Is this the consciousness yes. of an individual? It, yes. it is. It's the saved consciousness of the person who, I think, trained Case oh, okay. um, in sort of yes. hacking, whose name is... He, he's referred to both as Dixie Flatline and McCoy Polly. Yes. Wow, those are two excellent names. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, which is something that I found a little bit confusing when I was reading it because the, the novel switches between those names. Yes. Like the guy's actual name is McCoy Polly. Yes. Dixie Flatline. The Dixie Flatline is his like, it's like his nickname or his handle mm -hmm. as a hacker. And he got that. The Dixie part is because he's from the Southern United States. Mm -hmm. And he's called known as the Dixie Flatline because he died several times trying to hack computer systems as one of the kind of central conceits of not just Gibson's cyberpunk world, but a lot of them is that you access computers by literally connecting your brain to them. Yes. So when you go into cyberspace, you're hooking your brain up. To yes. It. And one of the, ha like this makes navigating around cyberspace easy to do because you're literally just kind of thinking your way around. But the hazard is if you are trying to do uh, something that you're not supposed to do, it can kill you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's also, it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to take your very, very good and coherent explanation of this, Evan, and I'm going to make a mildly dirty joke, which is that it's referred to as jacking in and jacking out. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. And I'm sorry. <laughs> just as a general statement. We're sorry. I mean, I just can't imagine someone who spends as much time paying attention to street culture and slang and stuff as, as Gibson does, that he's not perfectly aware of those connotations and thus very happy for you to be making that dirty joke. <laughs> Would be my guess. Well, that's, that's good. I, I hope this makes Mr. Gibson happy. <laughs> I, he, I, when he listens to this episode, he'll be I'm sure. Well, open invitation. Any, right. any of the authors we've covered to right. be on the show. Could you imagine? 
Anyway, we, we digress again. We digress again. Steal the safe consciousness of the teacher. Who yes. is Dixie Flatline. Yes. yes. Who, who is dead. Like the real person yeah. is dead. Yes. And this, this consciousness is like all that's left. Yep. So, and they, they end up working with a sort of local street gang to break into the corporation that has Dixie Flatline slash McCoy Polly. I'm, I'm going to skim over quite a bit of the like nitty gritty of the explanations for how the heist works. Because it makes for a little bit dry relating, in my opinion. Sure. But if, if at any point you want to jump in and explain any of it, feel free to, Evan. I mean, the the very short version is that with the help of this street gang, who are... I mean, they're not just a street gang. They're kind of like performance art terrorists. Yes. Like, they are, they are terrorists, but not for a political agenda. They just like to cause chaos. And basically, they spoof a terror attack on the building where this construct is stored that gives Molly an opportunity to go in and retrieve because you have to retrieve a physical cartridge, which is, again, you know, adorably anachronistic. But you have she has to go in and retrieve a physical cartridge from the inside of this place. I like to picture it as a floppy disk. (laughs) Ooh, see, I I actually I pictured something like an Atari 2600 cartridge. Uh. <laughs> and and as as case is using the matrix he has moments of like forgetting kind of what's important to him and what has happened like he forgets about linda for moments and and while they're while they're pulling this all off also molly gets injured i believe yeah yeah and and that injury is important because it comes back yes a couple times yeah she gets her leg broken yes Ooh. And uh, she has cool drugs with her that allow her to ignore the fact her leg is busted and finish the mission. But yeah, that broken leg is significant plot point the rest of the way. Yeah, it's it's not a good time. But they do they do succeed in getting raw module, like the the thing that has Dixie's consciousness on it. And Case gets a message that's just the word winter mute. Mm. Yes, which is mysterious. Mm-hmm. But af- after the heist, um, Case and Molly meet with the Finn again, tells them that Wintermute is an AI and that, and I, I don't remember if he knows this or if it's just suspicion that Wintermute is behind the heist. Like it's what's kind of pulling Armitage's strings. Yeah, the, the message that Case gets at the end of that that heist, it was the answer to a question that Molly had had for that street gang. And the answer to the question is Wintermute. So she had asked them who is behind Armitage. Don't believe it's ever really made clear how they find it out, but they are able to determine that at least behind Armitage is this figure named Wintermute. Mm-hmm. And then able then the, through the fin, they're able to figure out that Wintermute is this, yeah, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. So they're not even working for a person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Wintermute is owned by one of the big corporations called Tess- Tessier Ashpool. Wow. <laughs> I-, I see you taking notes on this, Matt. I just, I wish you luck. Yeah, honest, honestly, these notes are already a mess, but we'll try to make sense of it at the end. <laughs> We're not even to the confusing part. I know, I know. We're, we're not even to the point where things go off the rails. Oh, no, I mean, this part is honestly fairly straight ahead. It is. So so Case accesses the, the consciousness, accesses Dixie, and he's able to talk to it like it's a person, but it doesn't really function like one. Like, it kind of remembers who he is, but doesn't really have any kind of, like, emotional connection to what's happening 
Mm. Like, I, like I think he has to remind it that it, like, that the person version of Dixie has died. Yeah, it doesn't know that it that that I guess the original uh, version is dead until Case tells him, and then uh, doesn't. Well, to as as a good demonstration of that, uh, not very emotionally connected, doesn't really particularly seem to care. Yeah, that he's dead. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a recording of a person. Uh, it's not the person. And that's that's clear in, in a few different instances in the book. And so Case uses Dixie to find, like, to try and get some more information about Armitage and finds out that he was a soldier by the name of Corto, mm. who was seriously injured in a battle yes. or an attack against Russia. Like, he's a, he's a United States soldier, I believe. Yes. And I guess I guess we 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 should mention that part of the, the background yes. to this world is that there has been a third world war and Gibson doesn't spend like he doesn't go through and, and, and kind of give you the play by play of it. Mm-hmm. But like obviously a pretty bad one because we know parts of Germany are like radioactive rubble. Mm-hmm. There was this war between the United States and Russia in which, yeah, this guy Cordo was involved and, and badly injured. Mm-hmm. Badly injured. And then and I think he was the only survivor of his team or yes whatever uh, division and he was i think he was given if i'm remembering this correctly he was given false memories in order to testify sort of to to save like the higher-ups from any sort Mm. of blowback yeah what what happened was this was something again i had to read several times to pick up on was that the mission was more or less it was betrayed to the russians from the beginning and the people who sent cordo and his team in to do it knew that but they sent them in anyway mm-hmm. uh, and when cordo comes out as the sole survivor and he's asked to testify about what happened yeah he's given basically fake testimony he's told this is what you will say and it protects the people who were responsible for the failure of of the mission which uh as i'm sure aaron is about to tell us causes cordo to go a little bit off the rails yeah he he sort of snaps and i think kills a bunch of people he kills a bunch of people yeah yeah and then sort of runs off into the the criminal world yes. and has now kind of reemerged as armitage and seems to be fine marks around fine. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember whether at this point... You know what, I'll just let you do this, because I, I, I can't remember where we learn more about Cordo, so I'll just let you do this. Okay. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a little bit later. Okay, I'll just let you do this then. Okay, well, we, we can come back we'll to this if I'm wrong. We'll circle back to I'm this wrong. point, yeah. The next part of the heist-ish is that they go to Istanbul to recruit a man named Peter Riviera, who is... He, he can project these, like, detailed holographs, and he's also a creep. Yes. In, in how, how do you mean? I mean, in, in most senses, I guess, that somebody can be a creep. And I think they, they are given the information right off the bat that, like, he is very manipulative and mm. enjoys betraying people. Not, not just enjoys. That's the only way he can achieve sexual gratification is by betraying people. He, yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I'm thank you for sharing, Evan, because that's certainly interesting. <laughs> it's color. It's world building. Come on. Yeah, and and I think they recruit him like for the holographs and like for his skill at getting close to people. Well, I mean, as we'll see, uh the creepiness is an important part of why he's being recruited. They, they need someone who is um goes beyond even like 
being kinky. They need someone who is deeply weird for for the role that Riviera is going to play in this in this uh, plan. Yeah, but I, I I don't think we know that off the bat. Like I think that is sort of revealed a bit later because um, at this point he just seems like pure liability. <laughs> Aside from the holograms, yeah. I mean, even the holograms, like, because there's there. I have I have here that there's a scene where he tries to make it look like Case's drink has sperm in it. Huh. Yeah, I mean, because he is like a sadistic, creepy weirdo, it becomes clear fairly quickly that he mostly enjoys using his holograms to mess with people. Yeah. Curious to hear what role he's intended to. <laughs> play you know but yeah once they've picked up riviera they go to freeside uh which is in space yes so we're in space now cool that's fun which is and and freeside is kind of like las vegasy yeah it's a space resort yeah and it's like kind of like lots lots of partying yes and it's it's owned by the tessier ashpool Yes. Oh, the big company. Yes. Right. Company. The same company that owns Wintermute. Wintermute. Yes. Right. Okay. And yes, they they don't just own it; they live in it. Yes, they, they live in it. Uh, attached to the end of of the Freeside yeah. Space Station is like the mansion, I guess, of the Tessier Ashpool family. And the 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 team, sure. I guess, goes to Colony of Freeside. Um, called Zion. Okay, I, yeah, uh, Zion is not part of Freeside. It's not? I th- it is a, no, it's a separate Rastafarian space station. Yes, I, I do I do have the Rastafarian bit in my notes yes. as well. No, there's a there's a separate colony of space Rastafarians. Because remember, they have to take a ship to from Zion to get to Freeside. Okay, yeah, I guess I, I, had, I had my... My direction's a bit mixed up there, but the, and they go to Zion to practice working in zero G because I guess that's what they'll be doing on Freeside. Yeah, the, the Rastafarians are a little bit unfortunate. Just the 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 way I think the Rastafarian accents have been written is a ah, little bit unfortunate. I see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this is something that even a, like just thinking of it as a writer, I don't know what the right way to do it is. Yeah. Because like Gibson is very, what he's he's trying to convey like a, a Rastafarian or a Jamaican Caribbean accent, and so you know he he writes the words the way I guess they would sound, but you know, I, I I'm not sure what the right way to do it is. Yeah, it, it like it comes out reading a little bit stereotypical mm. in my in my mind at least. Perhaps hasn't aged the most gracefully. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a scene in this part somewhere where during during one of the times when case is working with dixie dixie asks case to erase him when the job is done which you know implies that he or it i guess does have some emotions or or does Mm -hmm. at least have some thoughts desires Um, yeah desires yeah well because one of the things one of the first things that case does with the construct uh is give it uh sequential memory because when he first connects it 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 basically doesn't yes. remember time passing it has no sense of time passing and doesn't remember like if you unplug the construct and plug it back in it doesn't remember the conversation you just had with it and he basically leaves it hooked up to cyberspace all the time so that it has it can it can remember him and it can remember what they're doing and and behave more like a person but now that it's had i guess by this point the time frame is a little unclear but it's had at least a few days <laughs> days to think about (laughs) it's not clear uh but it's had some time to think about yeah being a recorded 
personality and it's decided it doesn't like it very much. Yes. Yeah. Which, understandable. And the, the Zionite, the, the Rastafarians, they know about Wintermute? Or at least, at least some of them, like the ones that they're working with do. The leaders of the Zion yes. colony do because Wintermute has been in touch with them. Yes. And wants them to help Case. Yes. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. basically played on their religious beliefs to convince them that it's important for religious reasons to help Case and Molly and the rest of them. Yes. So then, then there's a scene that is a little bit confusing, but where Case ends up in the Matrix, not like without kind of consciously realizing it, yes. because he, he just sort of wakes up in Chiba City and sees Linda and goes to talk to Julius Dean, and then sort of eventually comes to realize that he's he's in the Matrix, and that he's not actually talking to Julius Dean, he's talking to Wintermute. Mm. Yes. And there, there, is a reason, there is a reason why Wintermute is able to do this. Yes. Because earlier on, Case's uh, deck, the thing he uses to access the Matrix, was fitted with what's called a SimStim rig, which simulated stimulation. It's a way to have a full sensory experience, basically. And what he had used it for prior to this was uh, to get broadcasts from Molly so that he's able to kind of watch through her eyes and see what she's seeing when she's doing this uh, heist to get the construct. But because the SimStim equipment is in the deck, Wintermute is able to like create a whole world for Case if it, if it wants to. Yeah. And I think has to take on the appearance of somebody. Yes. Yes. Because basically it says it has no personality of its own, so it has yeah. to use somebody else's personality. Yes. It tries using Linda. It basically says Case has too strong an emotional reaction to her for it to work. Mm-hmm. And so he switches to Julius Dean. Yes. And I think, I, I feel like it was at this point that Case learns or figures out that Dean was behind Linda's death. But I couldn't. I think this that. is when he accepts it because Molly had told him that before. And I think he didn't really it until that moment yeah and we we also learn what wintermute's motivation is which is that it's only half of the artificial intelligence there's another half of it somewhere else and it wants to unite the two parts to be whole yes or something different anyway yes yes um because the other part can do other things cryptic a little sinister I mean, the the analogy that I'm pretty sure Wintermute is the one that uses it eventually is, and Aaron will know better than I will whether this is a good analogy, but like it's almost like a someone's brain with the two lobes separate from each other. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, according to common wisdom, you're, the two halves of your brain are good at different things and used for different purposes. And that's the state of these two AIs. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, th- I think the science supports that. Like if you... Through, through like the split brain studies and whatnot. Wintermute also warns him about Armitage that he's going to eventually sort of lose it. Yep. I think he specifically says he's going to come apart. Yes. Which is not great. And while this is happening, Case flatlines in the real world for a bit. Yes. During this this whole adventure. And then I think I, th- I think it's after that that they get to Freeside. Yes. And Case manages to get his hands on some drugs that he actually does manage to get high on. Yes. And he makes some, again, quote unquote, friends. Quote unquote, friends, I think. Yeah. And we, I think this is where we find out what Riviera is doing there, which is that he's there to kind of bait one of the higher ups in the, the Tessier Ashpool family. 
Yes. Whose name is Lady Three Jane. Yes. They need a password from her. So Riviera's job is to kind of bait her. Riviera's job is both possibly to get her to give up the... There's a password that's necessary to basically unlock the the two AIs and let them unite. Mm -hmm. So perhaps get her to do that. But also he needs he needs to convince her to let Molly into the Tessier Ashpool mansion, this place called the Villa Straylight. Mm -hmm. uh, she needs to physically access it. Yeah. Riviera is supposed to basically get her to leave a door open for Molly. And yeah, the, the idea is that she's this incredibly rich girl, uh, grew up in this incredibly rich family, completely divorced from reality. When I was rereading the book, I kept thinking of Ivanka Trump. Yeah. <laughs> See, I kind of, I, I, I got a bit of a, well, I was gonna say I got a bit of a Paris Hilton vibe, but like, that's not entirely true. Oh, maybe. I, I, what I specifically get is a bit of a Paris Hilton's character from Repo the Genetic Opera yes. vibe. Yeah, which I have not seen, but... Um, oh, which you should, but anyway. The idea is that she is so thoroughly jaded, like she has had every kind of experience you can think of. She's done every drug, she's had every kind of sex, mm. you know, everything you can think of, that to catch your interest, they need something truly, deeply weird. And that's why they need Riviera, because he's bizarre enough that he can catch her interest. And he puts on a show in order to do that. Yeah, a, a holographic cabaret. Yes, yes. Um, including an illusion of Molly, which is which is where the description of her, her breasts come in. We learn that the illusion has, I think, larger breasts than she does in real life. <laughs> yes. It's also Riviera is using that holographic show to mess with molly too yes yes he is he is specifically being a creep to her <laughs> i have i have like i'm my notes here get confusing which is like not helpful here because i have that molly like leaves salon or whatever that they're doing this this holographic cabaret they're at a classy restaurant right yeah they're having an expensive dinner which case is too hungover to enjoy yes <laughs> And then, yeah, Riviera puts on this show, which is basically the theme of it is it mocks and belittles Molly for being who she is, right? That yes. makes fun of all the all of the modifications and things that she has, basically makes fun of, of of who she is, and also makes her into an object of like like a sexually objectified object for Riviera to play around with, neither of which she likes, and so yeah. uh, she she leaves. Then I have in my notes a cut to a conversation with Wintermute before I get to the case tracks down Molly and I cannot remember, like, I assume that this is in, like, that I've taken these notes in chronological order, and I cannot remember why that interlude is there. Yeah, and uh, I'm trying to remember what's in that specific conversation with Wintermute, because Case has a number of them. He does, he does talk to Wintermute at that point, and I can't remember what the point of that conversation is. I believe, according to my notes, that this is the one where they talk about Linda. Right. Which is not that specific, I realize. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and that Wintermute reveals that it told Julius Dean to kill Linda. Hmm. Right. And it also says about how um, it, it has a line that I wrote down because I thought it was interesting, if kind of horrible, that for the little she was worth, she loved you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the revelation about Linda is that the whole thing of ripping off Case had been this rather sad, no matter how you look at it, attempt to get his attention back. Yeah. That they had had a relationship. Case had kind of drifted off, lost in his world of getting high and trying to convince people to kill him. And yeah, this was basically an attempt to get his attention back. That if she stole his stuff, that he would have to pay attention to her again. Yeah. yeah. 
And it's it's just a sad story. It's yeah. just a bummer. But then, like, like I said, Case does track down Molly after this cabaret. And they have a conversation where she reveals that she used to be a sex worker. But not just any kind of sex worker. Yeah, like like my, my understanding is that there was... I don't know if it was a chemical or like a like an implant that sort of turned her brain off during it. Oh, yeah. I think it's implied to be a, a, an actual technical implant. That yeah, basically uh, the phrase that gets used in in the story is a meat puppet. Basically, they can turn off your consciousness, and then literally people can just use your body. Oh my! And they can program a kind of alternate personalities into your body to provide a range of experiences for the customer. And then that was how she earned the money to get the enhancements that she has now. Right. I feel like we're breaking Matt. No, no, no. I'm just, I, I apologize <laughs> to both of you and to the listeners because I've been silent for the past, like, 10 minutes. He, just... did, he has, I think, given up on taking notes. Honestly, so we're not too far into I've got at least four pages worth of notes at this point. And, uh, I mean, I only have three pages of notes. So. Yeah. Wow. There, there's a lot to drink um, in here. But, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. <laughs> we'll, we'll debrief after. Well, exactly right. We'll debrief after. And Riviera goes off with three Jane. Yes, he he succeeds in that part of his mission. Yes, he he succeeds, so that's good. <laughs> and then I think the next thing that happens is that Case goes back to the hotel room that they're staying in. Yes, and gets arrested. Yes, special cops. Special cops. Yes, they're <laughs> special AI cops. AI cops. Yes. Specifically, they're they're arresting him for conspiracy to augment an artificial intelligence. Because mm, yes. I guess that's illegal. I didn't know that was a um, crime. Apparently it is. Yeah, apparently. And, and this has been kind of hinted at before, but becomes clearer now that artificial intelligence is because of, of I guess, the potential of what an AI can do. They have, There are very strict rules about what you're allowed to let them do. And the one thing you are not ever supposed to let them do is be autonomous in the way that Wintermute wants to become. Interesting. Our artificial... Sorry to interrupt the flow, but are, are AIs common in this world? Like, does everyone and their sister have one? Or I don't think so. They're implied to be pretty rare. Yeah. Especially ones that are smart on the level that Wintermute is, yes. is approximating or going beyond human intelligence. They're, they're implied to be quite rare. Okay, I see. And another quick question here. Wintermute knew that Linda loved yep. Case. How exactly? Did, did I miss that? Did I miss that detail? How, how does Winter know that? I mean, this is one of the things that I, I would say is, a, is kind of a, a theme of the book, is that some of our artificial characters, like Wintermute, uh, are better at figuring out people than the people are, and are arguably more human than the humans. Uh, yeah. So like Wintermute has been paying attention. He's implied to have sources of data on all kinds of people, presumably through the resources of basically being the AI of a giant corporation. And what he's very good at is figuring out people and the way that they will behave, the decisions they will make and the reasons why they make them. So Wintermute understands people and he understood Case and Case's life better than Case understood it himself. Mm, okay, mm. interesting, I see. And so so the cops arrest Case and they've also arrested Armitage, but Molly got away. 
And Evan, maybe you can answer my question about this, but why, why, why we hear about the female cops' breasts? I mean, there is like a kind of extended thing about all of them, although Case is kind of focused on the on the on the female about how again these are people who have had all kinds of plastic surgery to look much younger than they are. Yes, because Case focuses on the fact that the only place you can see their age is their knuckles. That apparently they can't do anything about how wrinkly your knuckles look when you get old. Now I'm now looking at my knuckles and yeah, they're pretty wrinkly. Anyway, <laughs> we all are. <laughs> we all are. So, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, there is more focus on, on the female one. I don't know that I would feel confident whether that's case who is implied to be a little bit of a horn mm. dog. Oh, there goes that clean rating. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I don't think horn dog is a swear. I think horn dog's fine. Okay. Or whether that's, or whether that's Gibson, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, it was just one of the things that like stood out to me in the reading was like, ah, uh, okay, I'm glad, I'm glad I know what the female cop's breasts look like. That's <laughs> helpful to my envisioning of the scene. It all, it all doesn't really matter all that much because as soon as they go outside, Wintermute manipulates the environment and kills the cops. Yep. Um, Interesting. Like okay. has... I'm trying to remember exactly what happens, but he manipulates like these like robots to mm. attack them, basically yeah. like yeah. like hedge trimming robots and stuff. Yeah, basically groundskeeping robots. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is probably as gory and horrible as you're envisioning it. Lovely, probably. And Case passes out and wakes up. I, I I don't know if I'm missing connective tissue or if this is just the book doing the thing again where it will kind of start. In the middle of a scene. I think it just, yeah, I think it starts in the middle of a scene because he flees yeah. back to the ship that he had been using and uh, and kind of sh- part-time living on with one of our space Rastafarians. Yes, Malcolm. Yeah. And and Armitage is there too. Casey is able to use the Matrix and, and also Dixie to tell that uh, Molly has accessed the uh, Straylight Villa. Like, in order to get the other part of Wintermute's AI. And, again, we sort of have the information that, like, she needs this password from 3Jane. Yes. I think he's able to connect with Molly as well, like, directly, more or less. This is when he's using the, the SimStim thing. So he can, like, see and, and not just see, but experience all the senses of where she is. Mm-hmm. It's mostly one way. But I think it's at this point that I think it's Dixie figures out uh, she has also like a, a clock readout in her glasses. So it's literally like a like an LED clock readout that's showing her the time all the time. I think it's Dixie is able to figure out how to basically use that to send text messages to her, more or less. So they can kind of communicate two way. Yes, yes. Which is like uh, kind of kind of funny given that phones now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is where one of the yeah, you know, you would think cell phones but yeah no one has cell phones they don't exist yeah it's it's fine and this is this is definitely where my understanding of what's happening starts to really go off the rails <laughs> Which, this is the part <laughs> matt has just given me a very <laughs> very flabbergasted expression yeah this is the part that's fine all right buckling up i mean everything that happens in the villa straylight is super yeah. weird i mean if you thought the earlier stuff was weird, uh, buckle up is a good way to think of it. Because there is a scene that I have read multiple times, and I do not understand it, where Molly encounters Ashpool, like the the original Ashpool. Yes. Yeah i I don't understand this scene. Do you want me to just do you want me to just kind of exposition the whole thing with the 
that might be the easier thing than me <laughs> taking a stab at what happens in it. Okay. So here's the thing with the whole Tessier Ashpool family. And it gets back to this idea of the of the immensely rich no longer being remotely human. Yeah. Picture this extremely wealthy family like the Hiltons or the Kardashians or something like that. Or the, I keep coming back to the Trump family because mm, this seems yeah. like a very Trumpy plan. Yeah. That basically they come up with the idea of perpetuating their family by cloning their children. Yes. Which is why she's three Jane. Because there have there's been a one, two, three, so on. Hmm. Yeah. So instead of having like a normal family that continues to have more marriages and generations of children, they're just going to continue to clone their children forever. And that that's what will run their corporate empire for the rest of time will be these cloned children. And the analogy that gets used a few times is that of a wasp's nest, that that's what this family would like to be, is like an insect hive that's just consistently reproducing exactly the same creature over and over again. And that's what that's who they want to be running, Tessier Ashpool. That's what they want the future of their family to be, just the same people over and over again. So Ashpool, by this point, has been in kind of cryogenic stasis for long stretches of time. Again, this idea of immortality, and he's done it through cryogenic stasis and leaving his cloned child to run things while he's doing this. He has woken up at this point. And it's implied this is another thing that Wintermute has kind of arranged. And so when Molly walks in on on Ashpool, I mean, he's a little bit crazy, I think, at the best of times. He's also I, suffering some kind of brain damage from having been in uh, cryosleep for this long. But it's, heavily, it, it's also clear that he was never a very sane person to begin with. Because one of the things he does whenever he wakes up is have sex with one of his cloned daughters. So... Which is the scene that Molly walks in on. Basically, he has just had sex with and killed one of his clones. Yes, I, huh. I do remember that one. Yeah, right. And I mean, what that scene is is supposed to do, as best I can figure it, is it's supposed to be really hammering home this point of how inhuman and weird this whole family is and has become. Indeed, as you said, Trump family. <laughs> that really none of them are anything like what we would think of as ordinary people or or perhaps even people like they're deeply off into their own avenues of weirdness mm. Mm. and then molly kills him yes <laughs> i i have in like in my notes there it is then she dot 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 kills him question mark Yes. I mean, and from her point of view, she certainly does. She shoots yeah. him with like a, a toxic, a toxin dart. Yes. We later find out that it was kind of academic to do that. Yes. Because he had also already been poisoned by by three Jane. So he was going to die one way or another. But uh, yeah, from Molly's point of view, he kills him. Uh, anyway, I, I found the scene very difficult to follow. <laughs> I mean, everything that happens in the in the Villa Straylight is weird. Yeah. A lot of that is is intentional because it is supposed to be this extremely weird place yes that doesn't make sense to ordinary people and only makes sense if you are part of this mm -hmm. incredibly bizarre ultra rich family that has basically been living and cloning itself in this place for, for what is implied to be decades so some of the man this is weird and confusing i i think is very much intentional yes mm -hmm. and, and we've got the added weirdness of case seeing it through molly yeah. Which like adds a, another layer. And then also <laughs> we have another added level of weirdness that sometimes an AI is messing with what he's seeing. Yes. Which makes it difficult. Yes. Because uh, I mean, there was a moment on uh, Freeside 
where like it has an artificial sky so it has artificial stars and i think it's when he's super high but he's looking up at the stars and they rearrange themselves to form linda's face yeah and then in that scene that really weird scene where molly kills ashpool for a second he sees instead of ashpool's dead daughter he sees that her face be replaced with Linda's face as well. So there is an AI messing with what Case sees as well. So there's multiple levels of like disconnectiveness. Yeah. Yeah. I, honestly, I kind of get the the sense of it's it's not nearly the, the same. It's comparing apples to oranges in a way, but <laughs> but almost the the level of confusion and uncertainty and distortion of reality kind of makes me think of it kind of feels like rather a, a sort of cosmic horror mm. where things are just so beyond and so warped and so twisted that you you can't really wrap your head around them mm. at the very least that's what i get from the the villa you know mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think i think some of that is what is what gibson is going for there yeah is that Case and Molly don't really understand these people. And I think you as a reader are not supposed to understand these people or or even really understand and certainly not empathize with what their goal is. Yeah. Because it's something that only makes sense if you are future Kardashians or future <laughs> Trump family or whatever these people, the best analogy for these people are. Cyber Kardashians. Yes. Cyber Kardashians, <laughs> yes. Their goal is washed. Yes. And meanwhile, in the ship... Armitage reverts to being Cordo, and he thinks he's back in the battle where he got injured originally. Yes. And the solution to this is that Wintermute just ejects him from the ship. Yes. Because this this is one of the things that we didn't uh, mention about Cordo that connects back to this idea of our human characters not actually being very human, is uh, that transition from Cordo to Armitage. Um, when he had his life of crime as Cordo, eventually he loses his mind completely and he becomes almost entirely catatonic. The way it's described, I think, by Wintermute at some point is that eating, excreting and masturbating are the most that he can manage. Mm-hmm. And then Wintermute basically, and again, Aaron will know better than I will whether this is a thing, is able to construct the Armitage personality for him. Yes. So the whole personality of, of Armitage is is created for this mm. shell of a human being by Wintermute, specifically yeah. to run this scam. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, dissociative identities are definitely a thing. Well, I mean, I guess there's some scientific debate about that. But, like, it's, as far as I, in, in my understanding, like, they are a, a phenomenon. But, uh, I mean, like we none of us can really say if it would be possible for an AI to make one. Well, that's just it, right? That, that kind of... <laughs> Shed some light on the fact that, as you said earlier, personality was a little Mm. flat, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, because what Wintermute is good at is existing personalities, right? And he's not good at creating something new. So Armitage is is described as basically being a composite of a whole bunch of other, other people. Yes. And yeah, this is why uh, Wintermute warns Casey's going to come apart, which, yeah, he does. He did, in fact, do that thing. (laughs) He does, in fact, do that thing, yes. And yeah, Wintermute's solution is indeed to eject him into space, which is, you know. Yeah. Harsh? A bit harsh. (laughs) Just a bit. I mean, it is a solution. I'm guessing, Aaron, that's not the recommended course of therapy for someone who's having mental Uh, distress. Not (laughs) usually, no. We try to avoid that one. Try to avoid ejecting patients into space. Yes. I mean, I, I would have thought. I'm just picturing having one, like having a button in the office now. <laughs> 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 but no, no, we don't do that. Okay. 
as far as you know. As far as I know. But meanwhile, Molly finds three Jane and Riviera, and yes. they capture Molly because obviously Riviera turns on her. And her leg is still messed up. And yes. this is the moment when basically the cool drugs wear off. And we forgot to mention that the Tessier Ashpools have like a, a pet ninja. Yeah, that's like, I, the pet ninja. He's like kind of a side note in the entire story. But yes, yes, they do have a pet ninja. I mean, just for fun, just for color, just uh, <laughs> fill me in. What, what's how and why? Well, I mean, he is basically their their in-house assassin. He's basically like they 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 call him vat grown several times. So I think the implication is that he's an entirely artificial person, like he's a clone yeah. ninja. But yeah, he's their in-house assassin who uh, also apparently entertained their children. As you do. Yeah. As assassin. <laughs> As you do. Assassin slash nanny. Yeah. Assassin slash d- did party tricks, according to some of the stuff that we learned. <laughs> So yeah, when Molly arrives, yeah, things go sideways because of Riviera and his holograms and her leg collapses and also Pet Ninja. Yes. Who does have a name? His name is Hideo. Hideo, yes. So Case, I think, goes in person to the Straylight Villa. Yes. Yeah, because Wintermute basically was counting on Molly being able to pull off her part of the which she is not able to to quite get done. So yeah, now Case is going to have to be plan B and uh, go with Malcolm into the Villa Straylight. And I mean, thinking of it as a writer, of course he has to. Yeah. <laughs> he has to unhook from being at a safe remove and actually enter, but he's going to have to enter the Villa Straylight, save Molly, get the password from 3Jane and accomplish the mission in person. Yes. <laughs> and... Molly has what I have described in my notes as a troubling conversation with 3J. Well, I mean, yeah, 3J is supposed to be troubling. Now, we should say that when when Molly wakes up from being captured, she at least her hands are imprisoned in what is described as a sex toy. Yes. And I mean, admittedly, I mean, I'm not by any means an expert on this field. This sounds like a terrible sex toy to me. It, It does raise some questions. I mean, basically, it, it's like it, it's like a it holds your hands, and if you move them too much, it crushes them, which sounds awful. But I, yeah, again, with the three Jane has tried everything, and I, I guess. But because Molly is wounded and helpless, it, well, basically, it turns out yeah. three Jane's kind of into that and seems to be kind of into Molly. Thus, the disturbing conversation. Yes, and like wants to kind of keep her as a pet and nurse her back to health. Yes, or I, I don't know if the, if the back to health is necessarily accurate, but like wants wants to at least play the nurse. Playing nurse, I think yes. I, I I'm not <laughs> well. Back to health might be a fairly fluid concept. Yes, but. So disturbing conversation, yes. Yes, and and this is also where we get the revelation that Three Jane poisoned her father, basically. Was, I believe, helped in this by Wintermute. Yes. And meanwhile, Case tries to jack into the Matrix, <laughs> but instead ends up somewhere else. Yes, and and I guess we should we should say he has to keep... He still has to keep jacking into the Matrix because there is also the computer hacking side of this heist that needs to run. Yeah. And he can't entirely leave Dixie to do it because Dixie is a recording. Yes. And so not good at being creative. So there are parts of it that that Case still needs to do. So yeah, he jacks into the Matrix and he ends up somewhere else is a good way to put it. And it's it's sort of a beach? It is exactly a beach. (laughs) 
And he's with Linda. Yes. And there's a there's a bunker with heads which has food in it. Yeah. And everything but cigarettes, which Case is very upset about. Yes. And he he speaks to Linda and initially thinks that she's like part of the artificial intelligence, but she isn't. Like she she's also like, what are you talking about? But she tells him that there's a boy. Yes. And they go to meet the boy, quotation marks. Mm-hmm. It's the boy that's the other half of Wintermute. Yes, it's the other AI. And it him, he calls himself itself it? Neuromancer. Yes. We I think we get the information there that Neuromancer is able to create things, whereas Wintermute can only mimic them. Yes. So Neuromancer has created this world, mm-hmm. this beach in the bunker. Basically, he's trying to convince Case to stay here in this virtual world where he has his girl and doesn't have to worry about all these other problems, rather than completing the run. Because Neuromancer does not want Wintermute to succeed and for the two halves to be united. And the way Neuromancer puts it, which I think is a, a pretty good line is uh if, if your if your woman isn't real she doesn't know it neither will you hmm. okay yeah so i'm just gonna interrupt here to ask a couple <laughs> of questions is 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 she real because she's not an ai right did i did i make that con- is she an ai i mean it, it's unclear and I mean, when we get to the end of the book, I don't know whether Aaron will talk about this, but it's at least implied by the ending of the book that this version of Linda that's in this construct, uh, this this virtual world is a construct like Dixie is. Mm-hmm. Okay. But perhaps Rob Morgan. So this is a, a perhaps better. Yeah. Yeah. That this is a perfect. Yes. A perfect simulation or, or emulation of, of Linda. Yeah. That, that, that's basically my read as well. Okay. Yeah. And so basically Neuromancer offers Case this nearly perfect fantasy world to stay in instead of continuing with the extremely bizarre and horrible world that he actually lives in. Yes. Malcolm has to inject Case with drugs to like wake him up to get him out of the simulation i mean it helps it helps him figure out how to get out of it yeah that he's on a whole bunch of meth basically yeah so and they both continue into the the straylight villa they encounter the pet ninja they do who shoots malcolm once again wintermute's plan does not really go that well does not account for the ninja apparently is <laughs> now the, the ninja really is a problem for his plan because yeah malcolm gets shot with an arrow yeah and all, uh, yeah, th- things don't appear good but three jane calls the ninja off before he can shoot case and then i i i think riviera betrays three jane i mean it's it becomes clear that Riviera is now planning on being in charge of this place. Yeah. He's planning on being in charge of 3 Jane, he's planning on being in charge of the villa and probably being in charge of the corporation. Yeah. That he's not happy to just be the the boy toy of the week. Yes. And maybe not surprisingly for our space Kardashian, 3 Jane not into that idea. No, not into that idea. Um and there's this I, this is maybe this is maybe inappropriate, but I th- this part almost reads to me as like cartoonish, which is that like she sicks the ninja on Riviera, and Riviera is able to blind him. And that was something that was actually foreshadowed when Riviera was first introduced. Yes, that he can basically narrow down his holograph projector into a laser, and yeah, he uses it to burn out Hideo's eyes. But but Hideo 
is a ninja, and so he's still pretty good at fighting without seeing. Well, especially he practices shooting, he practices archery blindfolded anyway, so he's entirely unfazed by having his eyes burned out with a laser. Really, really the unsung hero of this novel, maybe? I mean, he is pretty badass. He is pretty cool. And then what I have in my notes is that Hideo basically chases Riviera off. Yeah. And I don't recall if that's accurate, but that is the part that sounds a little bit cartoonish mm-hmm. to me. Hey, get out of here. Well, you, I mean, you know the famous the famous stage direction from Shakespeare, Exit Pursued by a Bear? Yes. <laughs> this is basically Exit Pursued by a Ninja, is is <laughs> the last we see of Riviera. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the last we see of both of them. Yes. Well, and then, and then Molly also reveals that she has poisoned Riviera. Oh, yeah, yeah. The drugs that he's been on the whole time have been poisoned as well. There's a lot of poison. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of poison in this back half of the world. Trail. Which, again, now that I think of it, is very Shakespearean. It is, actually. That's just a fun aside, is that, like, he's been poisoned and, I guess, is going to die at some point. But, yes, that's... He is chased off by ninja. Really, exit pursued by a ninja should be how more things conclude <laughs> in novels. Right? So they, they take Three Jane to the the core of the villa. Yeah, because the... the- the password has to be given. It has to. Be, it's a special word that has to be given in a special yes. place. Basically, uh, I think Neuromancer makes another bid to keep case. Basically, and Dixie gets absorbed. What uh, What Wintermute says is McCoy Polly has his wish. So the, the construct has been erased. Three Jane gives them the word, which for some reason I haven't written down. Oh, well, I- Oh, well, no, you, because the word is not in the book. And this is something that okay. people have bothered William Gibson about uh, ever since, is what is the word? I mean, basically, his answer is always that the actual word doesn't matter, right? It's Which, a- I, I, I mean, I guess, but sure, also... Sure, sure. We know that. We know it doesn't matter. We still want to know, though. Yeah. And I, I kept meaning to look up and, and, and forgot to do some more research to see if he has ever actually said what he imagines the word to be. But the word is not uttered in the book. So you did not miss writing it down in your notes. Because it could be anything, really. And I, I think that's more <laughs> what it's supposed to be. It can be anything. What it is kind of doesn't matter. It's what it does. I guess. So, so she gives them the word, which allows them to access Neuromancer, at which point Wintermute and Neuromancer become one. And then Case wakes up in a hotel. Yep. And and we get sort of the rest of it in kind of narration form. Like we kind of move, we get like some distance from like Mm -hmm. the actual sort of here and now of what's happening. Almost like a prologue? Or sorry, an epilogue? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of epilogue-y, yeah, yeah. Molly is gone. We get the information that he returns to Chiba City. And he, like the, the computer got rid of the toxin sacs in his liver. He buys himself a new liver and a pancreas. So that he can get high again, yeah. Yeah, so that he can get high again. Finds a job and a girl. And we get the information that one time when he's in the Matrix, he sees the boy again. And he sees Linda. Mm -hmm. And he sees himself. Yes. Yes. And he also hears like the kind of creepy laugh that the Dixie flatline contract has had. So the implication is that all of those constructs are continuing to exist in the Matrix, which is supposed to now be very different because he does have one more 
conversation with an AI, although it's no longer either Wintermute or Neuromancer, where uh, basically having been put together, these two AIs now kind of are the matrix. Uh, cyberspace is kind of self-aware now. And Case kind of says, well, what does that get you? Yeah. And what he's told is that they've become aware of another matrix. Yeah. And I like having not read any of the other books, I'm not sure if that's, I wasn't sure if that was a lead in to. Not in any okay. significant way that you would think it gets explored. It gets explored later uh, and explained a little bit more that what they mean is like cyberspace is a kind of manifestation or a representation of all computer activity on earth. And in this moment that cyberspace is self-aware, it's aware of another matrix, which is computer activity on another planet other than Earth. Oh, cool. And that's just where it kind of leaves it. But he never sees Molly again. That's that's just kind of the end of, of the book. Oh, all right. Well, there we are. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, the very last act of it, which, I mean, if you're going to say that self-discovery is important, we have to kind of rewind all the way back to the beginning. Case has this kind of fi fixation on throwing stars. Yes. He, like, he looks at them in this weapon store in Chiba, and he thinks of them as the stars uh, that are kind of uh, representative of his, of his fortune, the way that you know, stars mm -hmm. in the sky sometimes are. Molly buys him a throwing star that he keeps with him through, the whole, through all of this stuff because she noticed he was always looking at them. He mentions towards the end of the book that he never even throws the throwing star, which is a little bit of a you know, violating Chekhov's gun. <laughs> But right at the end, yeah. after he's had this conversation with uh, the Matrix, I guess, the last thing he does is he, he's packing up to leave this hotel room that he had shared with Molly and now she's ditched him. And he picks up the throwing star and he's trying to decide if he's going to take it with him. And he says, I don't need you and throws it through the, the TV screen. And I mean, basically, if you want to read that whole throwing star thing as a metaphor, a case is deciding that he's going to kind of control his own life at that point and he's not going to be looking for answers elsewhere yeah fair enough well that's that's uh, you're, you're right that's a satisfying growth i suppose but huh just so much to there's yeah so much to review here there's, a, there's a lot there's a <laughs> lot here a lot of notes yeah i get i guess i i usually evan use this this kind of question to transition into the analysis portion but how do you each respectively feel after having finished the book? Um, confu confused, I guess, or, or maybe if not, conf maybe confused isn't the right word, but uh, a little scrambled. But but do you feel satisfied? What What's the consensus here? What do we think? I, f I feel like Aaron should go first on this one. Sure. <laughs> okay. I mean, in some respects, like, hmm, in some respects, I, I don't know that I feel satisfied, but I also don't think I meant to feel satisfied by the ending. Mm -hmm. Like, again, sort of in a lot of ways, Case ends up back where he started. And, you know, w with regards to the the AI situation, like Neuromancer didn't want to unite with Wintermute. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're left with this sort of hanging question about what happens to Molly, which I know gets explored more in later books. But yeah, like... I, I feel like I, I ended on this. And again, part of that is is confusion. Just being like, what did I just read? Mm -hmm. But not necessarily feeling like satisfied in the sense of like, you know, being, I don't know. And I guess I'm using satisfied to mean like happy in a way with like where the characters ended up, which is maybe a controversial uh, 
definition of that. But like, like satisfied with the storytelling, but ultimately kind of feeling like in a lot of ways, sort of what was the point, like on sort of a character level, I guess. Yeah, fair enough. I, I think I agree with you there in that my, my initial, what was the point on a character level? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the protagonist ends up back where he started more mm-hmm. or less, you know, and, and granted he, he's grown, his yes. personality's changed, but literally he's in the in the same place doing more or less the same thing right and maybe that is his happy ending but uh but more generally and and i i completely agree with what you said about how we might not we're not supposed to feel satisfied we're not supposed to feel uh satiated like this has come full circle you know and and what you both said earlier about how they certainly don't hold your hand and give you big blocks of exposition you know like a lot of it is left up up to us, right? Mm-hmm. Up to our own interpretation. And and what do you think, Evan? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not satisfying, I guess, in the way that some stories are, where like a big villain yeah. has been set up and our villain has been destroyed and our, our good character has triumphed. Like, that's not really any part of what the story is. Yeah. Like, everyone's motivations are fairly ambiguous. Exactly what has been accomplished at the end, it's a little unclear whether something really good has happened or something bad has happened or something indifferent has happened. And I mean, I guess, I mean, I, I guess I don't agree that case is back exactly where he started. No, not, not exactly. Cause at the beginning of the book, we meet him and he is basically waiting to die. Mm-hmm. And, and basically he would, ki- he would commit suicide, but doesn't really even have like the, doesn't really even have the initiative to do that. And so he's, basically trying to maneuver so that somebody else will kill him for him. He doesn't have any work that he likes or finds any satisfaction in. In fact, he's aware that he's a horrible person doing horrible things. That's where we meet him. At the end of the book, he has this role uh, back that at least he finds great satisfaction in of being able to live and work in cyberspace. And I mean, we can certainly wonder whether that's actually a good thing for a person, but I mean, it's what he wants. You know, he's goes on, he finds a relationship, which, you know, we don't find out that much about, but finds a a relationship that's not twisted and weird like his one with Linda was and maybe his one with Molly was. So I I would say Case is in a much better place than when we when we met him. I mean, it's not he hasn't become, you know, king of Gondor or anything like that. But (laughs) yeah, I would say he's in a very different place. Yeah. And I think that's what I, I meant by like unsatisfying but in a way that we're sort of meant to find it which is that like the victories where they are feel kind of small in some ways yeah and that like a lot of these sort of broader systems that are causing problems are still in place i i don't know that i had a good understanding i don't know that we're meant to have a good understanding of like how things have changed with you know the the ai that was neuromancer and and wintermute taking over the matrix becoming the matrix yeah i think it's supposed to be at the end of neuromancer it's supposed to be pretty ambiguous what this is actually going to mean that question does get explored some in the subsequent two books in the trilogy that's good but yeah i think the ending of neuromancer like that question is supposed to be pretty ambiguous but i I like that idea of of small Mm -hmm. victories because just thinking about Almost all of Gibson's stories that I can think of, that's almost always what you end up with, is not some big, dramatic, world-changing victory where the entire system of the world has been overturned and now the, you know everything will be different. But they are almost always these small victories of someone finding a way to be happy, 
someone finding a better situation just for themselves. And I mean, I think that tends to be very much more true to life than some of the like bigger victories <laughs> mm-hmm. that we see in fiction. And, and yeah, and and maybe it's just that like we we live in the, in the year 2020, and it feels a bit harder like in real life to count the victories. Yeah, the small victories. At least so that's definitely like some of my current pessimism, I guess, <laughs> taking over. Yeah, like I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn to this book or, or really a lot of Gibson's fiction. I don't think if what I was looking for was a really, you know, a story where evil is smashed and good triumphs, and you come yeah. away feeling hell yeah. <laughs> You're you're not going to get that experience from neuromancer. No. Don't you get that from really anything that I can think of that he writes? They are more those small victories. Um, and I mean, I think overall, like I guess what I like about the book, I mean, I I love the way he writes, and and I you know it's a it's a it's a it's a taste that I know some people can't stand. But also, like there's a lot of exploration of humanity, what it is or what it is about us that makes us human. Because uh, we have very inhuman, biologically human characters and very human, not biologically human characters. And a lot of exploration that you get in a lot of cyberpunk of like the dehumanizing effects of of technology. And Molly is a really good exploration of that. You know, this this woman who, you know, to make her way in the world has done all of these literally dehumanizing things. By the end of it, as, as, as you know, she admits directly to Case, all of the stuff she's had to do in her life, basically she can't be in a relationship anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, moving a little bit away from the, the, the concrete, were you satisfied with it? What, is, is it uh, <laughs> a, a traditional story where, as you say, evil is smashed and a little bit more towards the themes, as you were mentioning, of humanity? I, I found it to be very, it didn't deliver a ton of exposition this coming from the guy who hasn't read it you know but based on the synopsis that i just heard it doesn't offer a whole ton of exposition leaves a lot of things open to the reader and more than that it feels very experimental mm-hmm. and maybe you can speak to this as well evan because you've read some of his other work but as you said it felt like an experiment giving the the readers the the tools to analyze the human condition and how certain things can change it, impact mm-hmm. it. What, as you said, what makes us human? What makes us inhuman? D- do you see his work in, in that way as well? Or how, how would you interpret? I mean, I, th- I think that idea of, of giving you the tools to interpret things. I mean, I, I think generally that's, that's the way his writing is because he does it so consistently, like up to the book that he uh, released, I think it was last year. They're all, they're all like that. I don't know if you can still call it experimental when he's been doing it for 40 years now but yeah i mean I, I think that idea of yeah he gives you the tools to interpret some stuff and like i said towards the beginning i think demands a lot from you as a reader to okay here's some stuff figure out what it means and and wants you to be thinking about what does some of this signify what does this suggest about the human condition or what does this suggest about the world because one of the things that um is often m- mentioned around Gibson and his writing uh, like he's he's sometimes given credit for predicting the future like he's credited with coming up with the term cyberspace and a, and a few other things and so then sometimes he also will get called on things like well you didn't predict cell phones smart guy <laughs> I've seen him talk about this several times is he's always very clear that he's not trying to predict the future 
and that his books are not about the future at all. So like Neuromancer is not about the future. Mm. Neuromancer is about 1982 or 1984 or whenever he wrote it. So he wants, he wanted when he, when you were, when he wrote it, he wanted people to think about the world of the 1980s. Which I mean, strikes me as a much more um, honest approach to science fiction. If that's not a bit of a weird adjective to use just in that like obviously all all books are in some ways a product of their time regardless of whether or not that's the author's intention not that they all need to reflect the struggles or mindset of their time but that they are all I think kind of inherently imbued with them in some ways just in the way that the author is right. writing in the middle of society of course and and so writing about the future is kind of an impossibility because as we were talking about at the beginning where stories get set in like definitive years that then can come to pass and you can say, well, we don't have flying cars. So yeah. <laughs> thanks back to the future. Mm-hmm. It, it makes more sense to talk about it as no, I'm, I'm writing about the present just using technology that we do not currently have. If that makes sense. I wasn't too <laughs> rambling. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. No, no, it does. It does. I'm just writing, right? <laughs> writing my, my next point. So I don't mean to imply that people who write about the future are dishonest. No, no. But I mean, at least sometimes you do hear people who write science fiction will at least say that they are trying to predict the future or that they're talking about where they think humanity is headed or that that's at least their goal. And Gibson, at least every time I've, I've, I've seen him talk about his writing is very clear, at least with Neuromancer, that that's not what he was trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I think that makes sense, um, both for this and, and for just sort of the general category of science fiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, I've got an, another question that's a bit of a departure. Something that I noticed that was very interesting was you had both clearly stated that consciousnesses, <laughs> is that the consciousnesses um, <laughs> <Contra-pi>? <laughs> yeah, that, that are uh, replicated artificially do not equate to that person. And that, that was made clear. I don't know if that was just um, your, your coloring from it or if they explicitly state that in the books. But from that and from the scene where the protagonist appears on the beach and sees Linda and Neuromancer, my immediate thought when, when you said he appeared on the beach was, ah, heaven, right? And yeah. this is, this is a, a dead person who has been replicated here. Ah, clearly this is, this is meant to be heaven. And also there's the, right. maybe this is just because I've been watching slash reading a lot of quasi-religious speculative fiction lately, but <laughs> the, the two halves of the AI coming together, for me, I was picking up some Alpha and Omega god of the christian bible vibes did did you guys get any of that allegory as well or do you think that was just because of what i've been reading lately (laughs) and and what what are your thoughts on that do you think there is any sort of allegory and evan i'm particularly interested to hear your thoughts because you you know the author right Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i mean i don't know i don't know that i would ever expect gibson to be putting explicitly christian allegory into his books because uh, as far as I know, he's not a at least a devout Christian. I know, like he was raised in the American South, so obviously he would have been surrounded by all that. But as far as I know, not a not a practicing Christian today. So I, I, I well, I mean, I like what you were saying about the beach construct being heaven. I think that is essentially what's being offered to Case is here have heaven and that idea of the Alpha and the Omega coming together. I mean, I, I, I like that as a 
as a point of comparison. I don't think this is like Golden Compass or Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, where there's like a Christian message to this. Perhaps especially because these are these are all artificial constructs. These are AIs doing these things. These are things that are the creations of, of humanity. Yeah. It seems to me that like the imagery might be intentional, especially like in the beach scene, to kind of potentially bring those associations to mind. But uh, again, sort of that it's like a false heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also I can't. The Christian God is not my is not my um, association with the terms Alpha and Omega, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> I didn't have any other questions, but let me just flip through my notes real quick because I didn't have a chance to review this mess before we launched into it. So just give me two seconds. You guys can just chit chat while I. Did you have any other things that you particularly wanted to bring up, Evan? No, I think I've I think I've rambled on about all of the stuff that I I kind of expected to ramble on about. <laughs> I mean, let me let me ask you this, Aaron, because you're coming at this as a person who is a great deal younger than me. How do you read Molly as a character? Because I know for someone as old as I am, I mean, Molly, at least when I first read the book, seemed like a reasonably progressive kind of character, and I'm just wondering whether she still reads that way now. Or if there's ways you see that character as, as as problematic. I I think she still reads as relatively progressive. Like I, I do think she suffers like her, her writing suffers a little bit from like dude in the eighties writing a female character syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> which is sort of a genre on its own, but definitely not nearly as bad as lots of the other sort of points of comparison, even more recent points of comparison, to be honest. Like she's She's not quite manic pixie dream girl. And like, that's not her character type. But like, I can see how her kind of character could approach that, if that makes sense. Like, I I like the character of Molly really well. Like, I think she's an interesting character. And yeah, the the fact that it's one of those things where I almost wish, and I know kind of the point is that like, she's not the main character. (laughs) But part of me is like, oh, but but I want to spend more time with Molly and and less time with Case. I mean, there is more Molly out there if you want to read more of, uh, of if you want to read more Molly, there is more Molly out there. But that's, That is true. I, I am aware of that. Maybe someday. Yeah, that, that's sort of my, my take on Molly, I guess, is that for, for the time, especially like, yes, she is written pretty interestingly. I do, I guess, partially wish that her story was not quite so baked in trauma. Right, yeah. But, like, uh, and, and that's just sort of, like, that's not necessarily William Gibson's fault that we tend to get a lot of, like, oh, this female character is badass, but only because she has been through X horrible things. Right. And so it, it's more about sort of the tropes that she falls into more so than, like, the actual writing. But, yeah, I, I guess that is, like, the one thing where I'm like, oh, like... And, and I know that's sort of part of like the world that they live in is that, and I mean, I guess the world that we all live in that. You know. <laughs> no, but that, I mean, that is legit. And, and I mean, especially people who are maybe reading Neuromancer for the first time today are almost coming at it backwards. I mean, characters like Molly, the sort of badass female street samurai with the mirror shades and the razor blade fingertips and stuff. I mean, they do become, that character does become itself a trope. Mm-hmm that shows up in all kinds of that kind of fiction. So yeah, uh, it, it almost often, I think to modern audiences, like it's, man, that's such a stereotype. I think because Neuromancer was as influential as it was. And like that character 
is one that got kind of redone or, or redeployed a bunch of times. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's always sort of a bit of a catch-22 in my vision where it's like, on one hand, like I wish that her, her her character backstory was not so much steeped in like sexual trauma specifically. Yeah. But it's also true that like many women have sexual trauma. Yes. And so it's not like, it is not inaccurate to portray that in a novel, especially one that is actively calling attention to these aspects of life Mm -hmm. and society Mm -hmm. yeah yeah although i yeah i take your point that i mean it might not be inaccurate to portray it but i suppose like in an ideal world that's not the character or that's not the background you want to see all the time yeah and again this is sort of an issue of like the tropes that have sprouted up very much kind of since this that a sexual trauma backstory tends to be the norm in lots of cases for these kinds of characters Mm-hmm. Did you have any other? Wondering if Matt had another question from the depths of his notes. <laughs> well, honestly, I've gone through the notes. They're they're on they're, they're illegible. <laughs> not not quite, but more or less. And and I'm also more or less out of big questions. But I suppose just one question in closing for you both. And I feel as though I already know the answer. Foundational, certainly satisfying, perhaps in a way worth the read. Despite the struggles, what do we recommend to the listeners? Yeah, I would say I would say worth the read. Definitely makes for an in, an interesting read if you're going to like take the time and be thoughtful about it, which I think was mm. part of my issue the first time I read it is that I was like reading at my usual speed, which is like not skimming, but like I'm a pretty fast reader. And so sometimes it's, things are a little bit more complex. I, I can miss stuff if it's a little bit more complex. And so I think that was part of my issue reading it the first time is that I was reading it like I would read any kind of standard book and go kind of quickly. And then I was like, oh, I actually don't, I actually don't know what just happened here. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, like if you're, if you're looking for something to kind of really sit down with, then yeah, I I think it's worth a read. I know Evan has like suggestions about potentially other books that like a William Gibson's that have perhaps held up a little bit better or make better reads. Well, I mean, I mean, obviously, like I have a deep and abiding affection for this book. So I I think, yes, absolutely. 100% worth the read. I I would say that if it's someone who has never read any William Gibson, I maybe wouldn't start with Neuromancer just because of those issues where the tech especially has not aged particularly (laughs) well. And some people find that so distracting, they can't get past it. Like payphones are an important plot point uh, at one point. And, you know, but yeah, I think it's 100% worth the read. I, I think I think Gibson is one of the, the best science fiction writers we have going still. And I mean, I would argue there's a reason that the book won the Hugo, the Nebula, and the, the Philip K. Dick the year it came out. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good indeed. The accent really makes the recommendation. It really does. Thank you. <laughs> I have a question for you guys before we quit. Yes. And this this is one that Matt can answer just as well as Aaron can, even though he hasn't read the book. Hit me. Okay. So the first line of the book famously is, the sky was the color of a television set tuned to a dead channel. <laughs> what color is that sky? I want to say salt and pepper, like like the, the scratchy, like, you know? Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Aaron, what color is that? I, I also thought the salt and pepper first, and then I also thought, but... Aren't blue? they? Yeah, I was like, aren't they blue mm-hmm, sometimes? Mm-hmm. Right, because I I've had various people argue passionately <laughs> for different colors. Uh, the salt and pepper. I've had just like gray, just like a flat gray. Sure. Yeah, 
And also, but no, if you sometimes if you tune a, a TV to a channel where there's no input, you get blue. Which like they all set a very different scene. They do make the scene very different, don't they? I'm not sure which is right. Okay, that was going to be my follow-up question. <laughs> I'm not sure which is right. And what what about you? What did you picture? My guess is that with the overall rest of the tenor of the scene, because it's talking about drifting shoals of styrofoam in the harbor and stuff, my guess is he's going for that flat kind of dead gray. Yeah, that mm. that does make sense. Is, my, is, is I think what he's going for, but I have heard impassioned arguments for those alternatives <laughs> that you guys mentioned. Yeah, I mean, the staticky, the staticky version would be a little bit hard, I think, to um, have the sky be. Yes. Although the blue is also not a color the sky typically is. Like that, that, that bright blue. Yeah, that vibrant, <laughs> like. Yes. Not that particular blue, no. We may never know. <laughs> Sounds like he, know. he doesn't like to answer a lot of questions about his work. Liberty. Well, we, we will know. We will know when, when William Gibson accepts your invitation and appears on your podcast, because yeah. then you could just we'll ask, ask him. him. We'll, yes. we'll have you back. We'll invite you back. <laughs> yes, we can all, and we can all Great. drill William Gibson for answers. <laughs> yes. That's right. Lovely. I guess unless anyone else has any final thoughts. Nope. You can wrap things up. What was actually no? I, I have a question. What was the experience of listening to? Honest. Well, you like for you're you. sitting across from me. You've seen my face, right? Like I did at several points. Just put the pen down yeah. and like run my hand through my hair like several times, trying to come to grips with it all. And it 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 was. It's a book where I feel as though there's a lot of world building that is not essential to the plot, but that was thrown in here and there. And mm. so it was kind of a skin whiplash, you know, going yeah. back and forth from plot to, you know, this is uh, a little bit of exposition here, a little bit of color <laughs> here. It's but the, I, the pet ninja might have might have pushed <laughs> things over the edge a little bit. Well, there's a lot to unpack, I think is... There's a lot. That's yes. right. That's a good way of stating it. Yes, yes. Lovely things. Lovely, lovely things. You know, I'll take this opportunity to, and I'm sure Aaron will as well, thank you yes. for, for being here with us. You were, your presence was very helpful. Yes, in, uh, invaluable. Well, thank you for having me. This has been fun. Lovely. I'm glad. We'll have you back. Yes. This is great. Absolutely. Maybe to talk, Fantastic. Maybe to talk about something slightly less convoluted, but, or maybe just as convoluted. Okay. Who knows? We'll take on more convoluted. Yeah. Well, <laughs> next book will be. I was going to make a quip about that that Irish book, but the name has escaped me. James Joyce, uh, Ulysses. Yes. Ah. Yes. 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 I tried reading James Joyce once. It didn't go well. We'll add it to the list. We'll yeah. add it to the list. And uh, with with that, I guess, Aaron, what are we what are we reading next? Next time, uh, we're going to be getting into spooky season. And so I think we're going to read. I didn't have this prepared, but um, <laughs> I think we're going to read The Luminous Dead by, I think, Caitlin Starling is the name of the author. And I'm sorry if I have done that wrong. <laughs> we'll find out next week. <laughs> yes. Outstanding. Outstanding indeed. Great. Well, if you've enjoyed listening, and presumably you have, since you made it all the way to the end of this very strange, long journey, 
Please leave a rating, <laughs> thumbs up, like, or subscribe. You can find all our episodes on Buzzsprout as the Brodacious Book Club, and you can reach us at brodaciousbookclub at gmail.com. And um, I don't know if you specifically want to plug anything, Evan, but if he doesn't have anything, you should you should buy Evan's books and listen to his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> beyond that i have nothing that i would want to plug so yes if you wanted to check out either of my books uh the king in darkness or bonhomme satire that are published by renaissance press Found the name i would enjoy that they would enjoy that and if you wanted to check out my podcast with my good friend brandon crilly with has kind of similar conversations to this one in a lot of ways called uh, broadcast for the wasteland which you can find on iTunes and places like that. That would also be pretty cool. <laughs> yes. And, and thank you again, Evan, for, for joining us. Entirely my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been Aaron Rockford. You can reach me at Pineapple Fury on Twitter. And I'm Matt Thomas. And you can reach me at msthomas95 on Twitter as well. And thanks for jacking in, everyone. <laughs> nice. Nice. Nice.